Hey, Travis Rogers here. When you're not listening to me on the Lakers pre- and post-game shows, tune in to The Experience with Laferne Cusack, where she goes beyond the play and focuses on athletes, fans, and the biggest events that inspire and shape our community. Listen to The Experience with Laferne Cusack, Sundays, 5 to 6 a.m. ESPN LA 710. The months of June, July, and August are traditionally the hottest times of the year here in Los Angeles and Orange County, and likewise the traditional months when families seek outdoor fun activities, take vacations, head to sporting events. But there are various precautions for people of all ages, especially the elderly, to keep in mind during the summer season when it comes to excessive sweating, dehydration, exhaustion, and general overexposure to the sun. There are constant challenges concerning, for example, sunburns and blisters, skin care dangers, and infectious insect bites, including ticks. And then there is the possibility of injuries from warm weather activities such as softball and volleyball. But it's the threat of heat and the body struggle to stay cool, which can often possess the most serious health threats. Coming up, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. David Usby. He's an internal medicine physician in Laguna Hills for Monarch Healthcare. And he's going to talk to us today about the challenges of playing and working too much in the summer sun. He will help us recognize the dangers of heat exhaustion and heat stroke. ESPN LA 710. Welcome to the experience here on ESPN LA 710. I'm Laferne Cusack. Today we're talking with Dr. David Hughesby. He's an internal medicine physician in Laguna Hills for Monarch Healthcare. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hughesby. Uh, it is a delight to be here, Laferne, and always excited to try to help uh, your listeners learn how to be safe and healthy this summer. Yes, especially with the heat and the heat index. It's the hottest time of the year here in L.A. in Orange County. And uh, we want to make sure that everybody is having fun on their vacations and sporting events, but also take precautions. Tell us, uh, Dr. Hughesby, how did you go get into medicine and specifically internal medicine? Well, actually, the interest in medicine started when I was a young boy and going to a doctor's office and having them look in my ear. I thought, gosh, what is he finding in there? That is really curiosity. <laughs> uh, curious. So it was curiosity that really set me off. And, uh, you know, as I uh, proceeded further in my interest in, in medicine, I, I had good mentors and they uh, said, you know, if you want to do general medicine, you want to treat families and see all stages in life, do an internal medicine residency because that's going to give you a good breadth of understanding of basic illnesses. So I uh, started as a young boy and it hasn't stopped uh, at this point. I, I still love the curiosity of medicine. That's great. And talk about the your mentorship and how that helped you along your way. Well, you know, when you're in medicine, there's just so many different areas that you can look at. And uh, to have somebody come alongside and, and ask Help, help you ask the right questions to say, well, what am, what is my interest? What is my bent? And, you know, them having the perspective of seeing medicine or being in the, the field for a lot of years, they 
they know the, the, the strengths and they know the weaknesses and they can raise those questions. So I had an excellent uh, family practice uh, physician who, you know, directed me with those questions and I, I am very appreciative of, of his asking me that, those questions. So I think he gave me good advice. And what do you say for, like, families that come to you and are asking questions? I, I feel that a lot of people are taking more active part in their health, in their health care. Um, do you help guide them the way your mentors did into asking the right questions or standing up for their own health? You know, Laferna, I love that question because in, in medicine – um, 80 to 90 percent of your diagnosis is made by the history. So it is so key that there is an environment where the patient is able to ask those questions and, and to feel that this is a dialogue, not a monologue. So um, I think those things were mentored to me to say, you know, incorporate the patient in this process uh, and let them be able to ask those questions. Sometimes you have to you know, ask a question two or three times. It's kind of like you're checking the front door and the back door and, and the windows to try to find a way in. Um, but uh, that discovery is rewarding for both the patient and the physician. Absolutely. Um, I know that one of the there, – there are several PSAs that run on the station, but one is uh, talks about taking an active role in, in your health and – I was like, yes, awesome. This is how it should <laughs> that, be, you know. It is, and that is really going to bode well for the patient when they are actively involved in asking those questions. It's so, so important. And one of the things that is happening now, I was telling you offline that a couple weeks ago uh, when it was like really hot, I saw this guy jogging down Melrose avenue in like 80 85 degree weather and i'm like during the middle of the day the hottest time and i'm like what are you doing doing?" well when i hear something like that the questions that go through my mind are oh my goodness you're you're violating the first uh three points here uh you know one is uh you're going at the time of day when the sun uh uv exposure is the highest number two uh, you know, you're you're doing it in a time when it's hot. And uh, three, the question is, have you been doing your regular exercise all along or because we've had you know, so much cloudiness and, and weather that you say, oh, I don't want to go out and exercise right now. All of a sudden, it's sunny and you go, oh, I'm going to go out and do my exercise again. You may not have built up that acclimatization right at that point to be able to say, oh, I'm, I'm at my point where I'm ready to do the usual activity I did before the weather wasn't quite as good. Yeah, and also when there's a lot of overcast, it may be deceiving as well, and it still might be excessive, and you might get dehydrated as well. That is such a good point as far as UV exposure. Just because it's a cloudy day doesn't mean you're not getting ultraviolet exposure. So, uh, you know, on that whole idea, remember your peak ultraviolet exposure is between 10 and 2 or 3. So trying to do it before those hours of 10 or after that can really help reduce your ultraviolet exposure. 
so can you tell us some of the symptoms of heat exhaustion and heat stroke? Well, that's a question that we hear a lot of times. Most of the time, people get that confused. Which is it, heat exhaustion or heat stroke that's worse? And uh, let me just state at the very beginning, when we talk about heat illness, the major uh, factor in uh, developing a heat illness is not so much the temperature as it is humidity. And, you know, humidity more than 75% is going to be a uh, contributing factor to increased risk for heat illnesses. Um, Then, you know, certainly the amount of sun exposure and also temperature. But what we get concerned about is when we're not able to sweat, and that's why humidity is such a key factor here uh, with development of heat exhaustion, heat stroke. When you have high humidity, you're not able to uh, employ what your body normally does um, for kind of re- reducing temperature, your core temperature in your body. So that sweat helps, you know, cool you down. When it's humid, you can't get that usual uh, cooling down effect. And so when we see heat exhaustion, that's uh, typically the less severe of the two. Um, the person is going to start to potentially have some elevation in their body temperature, but they may feel some nausea, vomiting, headache, fatigue, dizziness, Uh, oftentimes they're feeling very, very thirsty and their heart rate can be a little bit on the faster side. Usually their mental status is is, uh, good, although sometimes you can have just a little confusion, uh, but that typically responds quickly. It's not something that's protracted. Heat stroke is a much more serious situation and that's where you've just gone on for such a long time with this inability to cool down with your sweating that your body temperature actually starts to go up to 104, 105 on occasion. Wow. And the mental status starts to become con- more confused. You have slurred speech, uh, sometimes hallucinations. Your heart rate's definitely fast. And typically your skin uh, can be dry. So... Uh, when you get into a heat stroke, that's that's an emergency, and you need to get over to uh, you know emergency room and have that uh, addressed quickly. But hopefully, if you are aware of these earlier symptoms, you can take those measures. With you know, if you start having more heat exhaustion, get the person in, into a cool room uh, or cool down. You know, try to get them some fluids, and you know be watching them very carefully. Yeah. So do you see uh, a lot of athletes come in with kind of like heat stroke or heat exhaustion? Well, those that are are, are very determined. Uh, we may even see it uh, the weekend warriors. Sorry to all yeah. those of you that like to be weekend warriors. But, uh, you know, it's really key to, to make sure if you're exercising and doing those things that you are building up. That is so key. Um, especially when the weather changes, you know, quickly, uh, you just haven't had that time to let your body get used to the higher temperatures and higher humidity. So and oftentimes we'll see, you know, someone, I won't give an actual age number, uh, but uh, those that are, you know, old, uh, you know past their uh, 
their prime in high school, let's put it that way, thinking <laughs> that they can do <laughs> some of the things that they used to do uh, on the football field or track, and they go out and wanting to prove themselves, and that's when they get into trouble. Uh, they forget, you know, some of the basic things that uh, when you're very active is that you keep well hydrated. Um, and, you know, as far as other non-heat, you know, uh, related issues, but, you know, keeping yourself if you're exercising for a longer period of time, not just fluids, but uh, your carbohydrate intake and making sure that you don't get into some of those deficits with uh, your glycogen, your glucose in your body. Yeah. So, I mean, this is really important because there are are a lot of heat-related deaths that have been reported like nationwide by the CDC uh, uh, and prevention. Like Between like 1999 and 2010, there was over 8,000 heat-related deaths. And yes. I don't know if you, you know, I've seen a lot of athletes and particularly young athletes in the news um having heat exhaustion or heat stroke and dying. Um, and I don't know if it's, you know, because the media is able to, we're able to expose that more or if, you know, this has been happening all along and we just weren't a, that aware. I, I think there's probably a combination of two, uh, those two things there. Um, what we have available now that can be very, very helpful is that heat index um, because that combines a lot of the different factors, the humidity, uh, the actual you know, temperature, uh, and kind of combines that with a point of saying, okay, is this a, a danger? Is this you know, caution? Is this uh, more of uh, kind of the yellow light or the red light or the green light? So First of all, I would make sure that people really listen to those heat indexes and and you know respect that. Um, yeah, so I think that would be the the first thing. Uh, I think we're hearing more even with younger athletes when you know they would be pushing through because they wanted to really show that they were uh, uh, very um, active and fit. Right. That they would kind of push through those tougher. Uh, weeks, you know, uh, the weeks that, you know, it's like camp for football or baseball or something where there's pretty intense workouts. Mm -hmm. But realizing that even in those situations, you need to take uh, those precautions, simple things like keeping well hydrated on a regular basis, you know, substituting, you know, your players frequently so that uh, the others have a, have a chance to get some rest and cool down. So, you know, I think being aware that these things are real, it's not that you're wimpy if you take some time, you know, to rest and get hydrated. It's smart. It's a, it's a good strategy. So I think when you had asked for us to, to speak on this, I thought, what a great opportunity to raise awareness. Because, again, if you know symptoms, if you know ways to be preemptive, by keeping that regular hydration and, and, you know, making sure that when, you know, there's, there's a player that's going to be at rest, uh, that you're taking them out for that rest time that you put them in a shady area that's not going to be rest and you're putting them out on a hot, you know, field and not getting that chance to cool that body temperature down. Yeah. Are there more, are there some people that are more susceptible 
to the heat? Well, we look at uh, just in broad spectrum uh, in the general population, there are two groups that I am extremely concerned about. And one is young children or children, and the other is the other spectrum is our older seniors. Um, the reason why children uh, are more susceptible is their bodies have less blood volume than uh, an adult. So when they lose fluid, um, they don't have the, as much reserve as an older uh, individual or an adult. They also have what we call a higher body surface area. So um, they've got more skin that's exposed per pound of, of weight. So that's an area for things to be you know, exposed and, and temperatures to raise up. So, and their bodies don't sweat as readily uh, or as easily as uh, an adult. Younger, so children, young kids? Oh, children don't sweat? They don't as sweat much? as much, yeah. <laughs> now, you may take an exception to that when you do laundry or whatever, but, <laughs> <laughs> right. but, but, they, but, you know, what we find is that they don't have that ability to sweat uh, as readily as you get older. And I, I've seen it in my kids, you know, compared to when they were young and when they were older. They've, uh, they've gained that ability to sweat. Okay. Interesting. Now, on the other side of the spectrum is our seniors, and and those issues, it's from a cardiovascular standpoint. Their their heart uh, may not have quite the same reserve. Their again, their body is not able to regulate the heat quite as well. Uh, seniors might not be getting as much uh, hydration or water. Sometimes they don't want to drink a lot of water because it means at night they're going to have to get up. Oh, right. Use the bathroom. So there's things where they just naturally kind of push away from keeping hydrated. And again, when you have underlying cardiovascular issues, your reserves are less. So both ends of that age spectrum are ones that we get more concerned about with susceptibility to heat-related illnesses. Hmm, very interesting. And then also uh, obesity or in certain drugs, they too have an effect? That's, that can certainly be the case. Uh, you know, again, for uh, some of my patients that are on water pills, and uh, that would be one where they're already going to be uh, maybe reduced in their, their intravascular or their body fluids to begin with. And uh, not necessarily heat-related illness as far as exhaustion or heat stroke, but some medicines can make you more susceptible to uh, the sun, get rashes and and potential issues there. Right. Um, And I know we we talked uh, talked about, you know, sports activities um, in hot conditions that lead to overheating and problems and injuries. Uh, is there something that happens to a body, an athlete's body, when they are exposed to heat exertion or a heat stroke? What what exactly happens inside the body, and are, are, is it reversible? Uh, well, the key is to get the uh, treatment early, but one of the things that I, I'm most concerned about with heat stroke uh, is sometimes your muscles can uh, start to have 
issues where they, they break down. Um, your blood pressure can drop, and that puts more stress in your kidneys and, and your muscles. So uh, real important on that. Uh, you need to make sure you're perfusing uh, your brain and, and all those other uh, key vital organs in your body. So uh, the key is get in and get that treated. Yes, you, uh, things can be corrected, but you don't want to get to that point where there's been so much uh, blood pressure drop that it's causing your kidneys to not perfuse and, and then to have your muscles uh, break down because you are uh, have irritated them. That, that makes it hard on your kidneys as well. So um, look at that. It's not just a badge of honor to push through. It's really you want to protect your kidneys and, and your heart from those things. Yeah. This is ESPN LA 710. I'm Laferne Cusack speaking with Dr. David Hughesby. He's an internal medicine physician in Laguna Hills for Monarch Healthcare. Dr. Hughesby, can you talk about um, how, as an athlete, what we can do to prevent, uh, you know, getting our core body temperature getting overheated? Like some... Yeah, go ahead. Well, again, being aware of when it's time not to exercise and to choose a time of day when uh, that heat index is less, first thing. Uh, The second thing is to make sure you're hydrated. As we talked about, your body's way of cooling off is sweating. So if you get dehydrated, you shut off that ability to sweat as, as readily. So being aware of regular water breaks um, and to you know take that fluid on a, on a regular basis listen to your body if your body's starting to say you're thirsty listen and drink uh, drink that fluid and, and make sure if you are doing an extended um, you know exercise time which you know I would say be careful on that uh, when the conditions are not good but at least when you're extending uh, your exercise ability, I would make sure that you are uh, having a chance to take not only uh, water, but make sure uh, that you have the carbohydrates and the electrolytes in there so that you're not taking too much what we call free water and then having an issue where your salts drop in your body. So that would be you know very, very key. Uh, even the type of clothes that you're wearing would be very, very important. Um, you know, making sure that you're wearing a single layer or loose-fitting clothes and sometimes wearing a, a lighter color so it doesn't absorb that radiation as much. Those can be things that, that can be helpful. And then, uh, again, going back to this point of uh, acclimatizing or, or allowing yourself to build up. So you don't want to go out and do, you know, an exercise program that you haven't done um, for a long time or and the weather has just changed and all of a sudden you're expecting to be able to do the same level of performance, you know, when it's 90 degrees compared to what you're doing in 70 degrees. Right. I, I think we see that, you know, when you see uh, the marathons, there's always yeah. those that are doing marathons that, you know, the temperature changes and that's when we all get very concerned about how many of those athletes, you know, are so uh, determined to finish, and and yet, you know, the temperature and the heat index have, have gone up, and it's just not a good setup. So hydrate, hydrate, hydrate uh, appropriately, um, and then make sure that you're 
wearing appropriate, you know, clothes that are not going to just trap the heat, so to speak. Um, and then choose the time of day that you're doing your exercise. Now, uh, we talked about, you know, this is now a time for vacationing and all of that and some party partying. Uh, can you talk about alcohol and what effect that has on the body and uh, and the effect that it may hurt you in regards to the heat as well? And certainly, uh, alcohol is what we call a diuretic, so you're going to have that tendency towards losing body fluids uh, more than you're actually taking in. The second thing, certainly with taking a lot of alcohol, the other concern I would have would be that uh, alcohol can make your heart more what we call arrhythmogenic, which means potentially precipitating uh, irregular heartbeats. So you combine that and you're going out and exercise and, and you know, vigorously, uh, and then you're taking uh, alcohol, that's going to make the heart potentially more irritable. Um, you have to be careful of that. Things like atrial fibrillation, uh, which is a particular type of arrhythmia, you know, can be aggravated by alcohol. So uh, moderation there. Uh, besides the fact you want to, you know, make sure that uh, you're getting your good fluids, the electrolytes, um, and the carbohydrates that are appropriate. You don't want to substitute alcohol with, uh, or substitute the good fluids uh, with alcohol. Okay, that's something I will add to my list for this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm being the bearer of bad news. <laughs> no, you know, you just want to go out and have a good time sometimes. But again, you got to take care of yourself, right? Yes, that's good. Yeah. Uh, so you, we talk about uh, uh, going out and jogging. Maybe, you know, there's a lot of woodsy areas. Um can you talk about bugs and bug bites and what we should <laughs> yes. do? I don't know. It seems like, you know, the summertime is just everything gets a <laughs> right. lot more prominent, right? <laughs> you, know, you know, what was that? I haven't seen that bug before. Right. Uh, but it's a, a time when, you know, you wanted to, to get out and enjoy being outside because you just haven't had that chance to do it quite as much earlier. Although, Southern California, we're, we're very fortunate to not have as much limitations as elsewhere. But, you know, the bugs that, that uh, readily kind of come to mind for most people would be ticks and mosquitoes, um, among other things. There are obviously there are other uh, biting uh, insects as well. But one thing that I would want to mention with, with ticks, although we are not in a high endemic area for lines here, um, uh, as opposed to the East Coast. Uh, ticks, uh, tick bites are still important to be aware of. And with a tick, um, they like to just hang on to the skin for a long time. You can have a tick that uh, will be on you for, you know, 48 hours and just it starts out as a small uh, uh, body size and as it fills up, it um, will get larger. So oh what... <laughs> yeah, I, I shouldn't get too graphic here, but uh, we want to make sure that when we're out in uh, kind of the Southern California chaparral or, you know, the high uh, brush area, that when you're out hiking, uh, you, you 
periodically just take a look and make sure there aren't any visitors on your on the especially the backside of your uh, extremities and your neck and places like that, um, and remove those quickly because um, you don't want them to to linger. The longer they linger, the more risk there would be for uh, certain infections. So inspect inspect underneath you know the, at the nape of the neck because uh, uh, I've seen that where they've crawled in there. Um, and just when you're, if if possible, and it's not excessively hot, you know, where uh, if you're hiking, wear longer pants or th- areas where you can tuck the pant legs in to limit the exposure. But uh, that would be one thing with with tick bites. And with mosquitoes, um, the key on that: uh, most mosquitoes will uh, have their foraging time you know, early in the morning and at dusk. So those are the times where you kind of say, well, I'm more susceptible to that. And maybe at those times, again, you know, I I put more protective clothing on, um, you know, or just be aware of that where you use some good mosquito repellent. Um, But, you know, just being aware of those things, I think, starts the whole process where you um, are laying down really good habits to lessen your risk for uh, insect bites and, you know, the illnesses with that. Now, I've never had a tick, thank God, um, that I'm aware of. I know, you know, growing up in the Midwest, uh, there was a lot of watch out for ticks and your skin and everything. How can you tell if it's a tick or a mole? Uh, Well, uh, you get called uh, a, a very good magnifying uh, glass, and uh, what I have found very helpful uh, is to use the internet at that point, and, uh, <laughs> yes. because you want to look at those images and, and make sure you've got it exactly right, uh, because they can be, you know, um, sometimes hard to, to identify. And remember, with a tick, it depends on at what point it's been latched on. You know, again, it changes size, so I can tell you what's the size of you know, pee or whatever, and uh, that is going to be dependent on, you know, how much it has engorged. So, you know, that would be what I would, would suggest. Get get a, a good uh, uh, Google image if I can use you know, a particular product there. Yeah. Um, and Or one of the other related ones. <laughs> <laughs> Not endorsing anything. Right. But that's been helpful uh, for me just to be able to tell my patients that's a, that's a good resource. But again, you're going to get magnifying glass. And, you know, let's say you, you took it off and then you go, um, okay, I want to have my doctor know about this. Uh, again, if you, if you have your, uh, a, a phone, I won't mention what particular type of smartphone, but, you know, take a picture of that. That's helpful for identifying that. Yeah, and you're you're not supposed to well i guess you could take tweezers and grasp at the tick you do at the at the very bottom there you pull straight out uh so the old adages of a burnt mus- uh, a matchstick and putting it at the back of the uh, the tick bite or vaseline those are not fully effective i think like 30% effective if you can pull you know close to the to where the the tick is inserting and gently pull straight out, that's better. Yeah, because Lyme disease is very 
hard on the body. And can you talk about that and what are some of the symptoms for Lyme disease? Well, Lyme disease is one of those uh, diseases that is so uh, mysterious and so many overlapping symptoms. Uh, you know, the typical thing that we look at is a bullseye lesion, you know, that you see on the skin. Oh, right. And, you know, that can be helpful, but not all cases of Lyme's will present that way. Um, and uh, it can affect arthritis, joint pains, you know, cardiac issues, just a profound fatigue, just a, a variety of symptoms on that. But, again, that's where it's important to you know, check the skin. And if there's any question, let's say you were in a high endemic area and you had a tick bite and it was on there more than, you know, 36 hours, you were sure of that, you know, then you would talk with your physician and say, you know, do I need to go on something antibiotic-wise for that? And Dr. Hughesby, I was telling you that my son is in camp and he's he's six years old. Um, and he came home, and it was overcast. He came home the other day, and the back of his neck was sunburned. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, didn't he put, you know, sunburn or sunblock on the back of his neck? I I blamed it on the father. but <laughs> Of course, absolutely. <laughs> That's a good way to respond. I, well, <laughs> you feel awful, don't you? Yeah, because oh, you look at his neck, and it's so red. That. Oh, it's like, yes. oh my goodness. Can you talk about that? I, I think sunburst? every parent goes through that, that yeah. whoa. Yeah. I should have done more. And, and, you know, again, just being aware of those things. And kids usually don't like to have things put on them, and they want to just rush and get into the pool. But here's a couple of things that I would just kind of throw out. Um, when you do use a uh, sun block for uh, kids, especially in the water, you, you want to try to put it on and have it on there for at least 10 or 15 minutes just to allow uh, the suntan lotion to kind of help uh, get set. I mean, it's not, when you have these water-resistant um, sunscreens oh, or right. you, know, you don't have truly any waterproof, you have water-resistant and highly water-resistant, uh, to form barriers so they don't wash off, you need a little bit of time uh, before they get into the water. So. Uh, apply it, uh, you know, 10 or 15 minutes ahead of time. We use the teaspoon rule, and that's like a teaspoon for a suntan lotion on the arm, uh, on each arm, and, uh, two teaspoons, you know, kind of on for the chest and torso, uh, typically, uh, you know, for an individual. And then the key that we often forget is reapply. Mm-hmm. You know, so... Um, you reapply every couple of hours, um, and when able, you know, to have uh, your child or yourself, uh, you know, choose times when the sunlight is not going to be maximum uh, UV exposure. So again, before ten o'clock, really helpful. After three o'clock, you know, strategizing maybe that's a good time. It's still going to be warm in some places where you know. Three o'clock or two o'clock, and you know maybe you kind of uh, shift the time when they're going to be at the at the pool, and then again, you know when they're out out of the pool, you know encourage them to be in shady areas or you know wear hats. So those are kind of some of the strategies that I would suggest uh, because oftentimes we forget. That's probably the mm-hmm. biggest thing. Two right. things: we don't apply enough, 
And we forget. And we forget yeah. to, you know, reapply. <laughs> so yeah. until we go, ouch, yes. that hurt. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Dr. Hughesby, can you talk about a severe sunburn, what that does to your skin, and how we can rectify that? Yes. Um, you know, the, the key on that is every time you have uh, a, a sunburn, a particularly significant sunburn, that increases the risk for certain types of skin cancers. And, of course, the one that we are most concerned about would be melanoma. So we really want to limit that um, chance for getting those uh, sunburns. Um, Again, the other issue long-term with any uh, uh, sun exposure is that it ages the skin and just makes the skin you know, less resilient. Um, And so it's kind of like you're putting money in the bank in the negative sense. The more sun that you're getting, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, you'll be paying dividends that you don't necessarily want. So investing for the future by protecting your skin now, I think is really, really key. And, you know, avoiding those risks for um, you know, bad sunburns and, and, and skin cancers and the uncomfortableness of that. So, have you, um, have you found in your practice that more and more people are staying out of the sun and covering up and taking care of their skin? I think we that is one area that we have made significant progress. Um, and I see more of my patients aware of that. And the nice thing is not just my seniors, but I'm also seeing it in uh, younger patients where, you know, the the status of a tan uh, is lessening and, and there is more of awareness of saying, well, I don't really want to, you know, get a sunburn and, and have this premature aging of my skin. So I think we're making progress there. Again, the key I think that uh, it needs to be re- reminded for people is, you know, putting it on um, early enough you know, before you're out there and putting the right right amount on, uh, an SPF of 30 would probably be a good uh, number if you're going to be outside doing a lot of things uh, and just reapplying, making sure you reapply. So uh, those are good points to just kind of be aware of going, oh, yeah. And, and for my uh, male patients, um, you know, that are having uh, some issues with uh, hair loss, just remember to wear that hat. Yes. Uh, it's, it's so easy. I think for a lot of uh, 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 gentlemen, they sometimes forget, I'm just going to be out, you know, for 15, 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And, you know, that can be enough, you know, to yeah. start producing some issues, you know, on, on the, the scalp or the, you know, the, the head there. So how easy or what is the process for removal of, of, uh, skin cancer, or because I, I, I've had a lot of friends that um, I've had actually. It's one particular friend who said when he was growing up, his parents never put sunblock on them, and they were always out in the sun. And he had to get a couple biopsies, you know, on yeah. his nose and on his face and in his chest. Um, what is the process for that to check to see if it is cancerous? Well. Here's what I tell my monarch patients. Um, I like to uh, tell them a uh, kind of a mnemonic here. First of all, as far as surveillance, 
It's called ABCD. Uh, uh, look at a, a mole that is asymmetrical. It's not completely um, matching one side uh, with the other side. So you see a mole that's got this funky-looking little shape and it's got finger-like projections. Um, you know, that would be concerning. Uh, just have it checked. Yeah. So, and B is kind of the same line, an irregular border or a mole that bleeds, uh, you know, something that, gosh, it just doesn't heal. It keeps bleeding. That's, that would be something that would be a concern. Uh, C is color changes. So if you had a mole that was one color brown and all of a sudden within that usual confine of that mole, you have a change in color where it's dark black or bluish or mm -hmm. even a mole that was uniformly brown and now part of it's lost pigment in the center. Uh, those would be things that I would would want to be aware of. And then D is diameter mole that is changing size or growing. So you go something that's been pinhead size and now it's the size of a, a pencil eraser and you know, that would be a point of going, well, let's have that checked. So A, B, C, D is one uh, area that I would uh, just encourage my patients to kind of look at and say, be aware of those things. Not all of those uh, findings, uh, if the present on a mole is going to say it, this is you know a bad actor, but it's one of those things you say, well, let's make, bring it to my doctor's attention. The other areas would be a non-healing uh, mole or, or a mole that it itches or there's pain with it or it's scaly. Uh, you know, those would be things you kind of want to look at. And then even if you look in uh, a, a mole and it has kind of an opaque look and there's little tiny spider-like blood vessels, yeah, that would be something you would look at. Um, so uh, the bottom line is, you know, make sure that you are aware of your skin um, and, you know, check sometimes on those hard-to-find or hard-to-look spots, you know, right. on your backside. Yeah. Those, that's that can be a tough domain, and that's why, you know, having your visits with your primary care doctor and say, you know what, can you just do a, a skin check and look, and if there's a question about something, take a picture of it with a little bit of a, um, a ruler so you know the size, and just check it every six months and see if, if that's gotten bigger or changed in size. That's that's one way to, to document, but, you know, good uh, regular skin surveillance, very, very important. Now, how do you know if you should go to, like, you, uh, internal medicine or primary care doctor or dermatologist? Well, I, I always like to start with uh, a primary care doc uh, because it gives him a chance to not only address that skin issues, but just to kind of check and make sure that you're doing all your other preventative health uh, issues and, and uh, to see you as a whole person. Uh, that I think is, you know, the fundamental reason that, you know, primary care is so important is to, you know, not look at you as just, you know, a skin lesion or an eye or an ear, but, you know, see you as a whole person and kind of make sure that the game plan has been set up. So uh, that would be my personal bent on that. Um, you know, if I had something that was, you know, very uh, suspicious, meaning that I've, I have this mole that's changed quickly and color change and, you know, all these eight 
parts of that A, B, C, D. You know, certainly a dermatologist would be one that would be able to get going on that very quickly. But, but uh, again, uh, I think making sure you make available the, the benefit of that primary care physician and just having him be that quarterback for your health is very important. So these are often just good segues to, you know, make sure that, yes, I'm looking at this, but uh, I need to look at other things that are good preventative health. Dr. Hughesby, also with older or elderly uh, people, sometimes their skin may crack or they may have lesions. Are you able to speak to that? Well, typically with seniors, uh, I think you look at one of the challenges that happens as we get further on in years is we don't produce as much oils. So we have a propensity as we get older to get drier skin. So one thing that that is really important is to not uh, over dry the skin. So that that would be one issue. Now I think you're also you may be also mentioning um, things like these, for lack of better terms, sometimes they're referred to as barnacles and these very yeah. rough scaly lesions, right. which uh, can often be. Uh, things like a pre-skin cancer, an actinic keratosis. And uh, those, uh, if they're a few isolated, uh, you can use something called liquid nitrogen to freeze those off because you do want those treated. Mm -hmm. You don't want them just to hang on because over time uh, they can transform into a, a skin cancer. So, uh, you know, making sure uh, that you're having those uh, looked at and if uh, appropriate by your primary care doctor, uh, you know, f- having those frozen. If there's a large area uh, of these actinic-like lesions, and oftentimes I'll see this in the area of the face or scalp where you just, uh, just as uh, very, very prominent, sometimes you will apply even a, a cream uh, that will help uh, change that skin and bring it back to a, a healthier um, a state. But those, uh, when you use those type of creams, uh, it creates a lot of inflammation and uh, sometimes is disconcerting to the person when you have them apply this and then the face turns very red. Mm-hmm. So you know, we don't use those you know, uh, immediately unless you know, we just have a large area that we have to, to treat. And Dr. Hughesby, if we do have, if we are a caregiver, we're, we're helping seniors, we have someone that we're, you know, managing, um, what can we do to make sure that their health is top-notch during the summer and, you know, cancer-free? That is a great question. Uh, first thing, uh, going back, um, make sure that they're keeping well hydrated. And in, in seniors, dehydration, very, very key. Uh, make sure that they're in cooler environments. Uh, you know, we see that every year in the tragedy of uh, seniors who are housebound and uh, in their 
their home with a lack of air conditioning and temperatures, you know, are rising and they, uh, you know, have more difficulty um, getting access to uh, fluids. And so they uh, just sit there not eating, not drinking and uh, heating up. So hydration and making sure that uh, they're in cooler environments. And, you know, even if it's you know, something where you can get them, uh, they can go, if they're ambulatory, getting to a mall or getting to a library, just taking some time to get into a cooler environment. Uh, a lot of times uh, uh, when this happens, uh, the senior, uh, uh, an elderly senior that, um, you know, is, has mobility issues uh, may not be even aware of the fact that they are getting dehydrated and, right. and they're heating up. So um, great to have people that form networks to be aware of maybe somebody on your street that uh, might have mobility issues and kind of check on them and see how they're doing, especially when the temperature starts to, to heat up and the humidity especially. See how they're doing. Absolutely. I We should all look out for one another. I know uh, having parents who needed to, you know, have that extra care and help, it, it really makes you think about, well, what is the care that you're providing and right. how are you going to help maintain that health with your loved ones? Yes. And, you know, it, it is, uh, I have seen over and over again the importance of that family, you know, support for a lot of uh, my seniors that, you know, lack the mobility, uh, just to have, you know, family that are out there asking questions and checking in on them. So key. Yeah, absolutely. So talking about, you know, asking questions for those who are maybe looking for an internal medicine doctor, primary care doctor, do you have any insider tips of how we can choose the best physician for us and our family? First of all, I think you go and interview the, the physician or uh, you talk with uh, uh, friends that you um, uh, trust and uh, you know, see, you know, from their experience, how well does this physician listen to me? You know, does he take the, uh, he or she take the time uh, that I need for that? Um, so I think uh, getting uh, recommendations from those that you trust and going and, and doing that interview. And, again, the key is... Uh, not everyone's going to desire the same style right. in a physician, and that's why the beauty of having a variety of different styles for physicians is so key. But you want to make sure that when you're there, and maybe you go for one visit, just see how well you are able to communicate Mm-hmm. Because communication is is so key, um, you know, for your health. If you feel that you are able to express what's on your mind, you're going to get better care. So, right. look at that. Uh, I think that is important. Look at the um, recommendations of others and see what sort of track record uh, they have had. I think that's helpful. And then, you know, again, uh, look at um, you know if there's any. 
uh, awards or um, you know certificates that he has had or he, she has had, I think you know, that can be helpful too. Yeah. Absolutely. And Dr. Hughesby, you've provided us with such great information on how to survive the summer. Uh, <laughs> without Good. A, that was the goal. <laughs> right. Surviving the summer in Los oh, Angeles. Oh, that is true. <laughs> um, again, for all those athletes out there, all those weekend warriors, uh, yeah. uh, how can we go out and tackle the heat without ending up in... Um, with medical care emergencies? I think the the couple of things that you're going to look at, remember the sun, make sure you have good sun protection. Number two, make sure you are keeping well hydrated. Uh, Listen to your body. Don't try to always push through things uh, when your body is saying thirst. uh, You need to, to listen to that. Be aware of the heat index and respect that. Um, make sure that you have taken time to acclimatize uh, to the, the uh, temperature and, again, making sure that your workout is appropriate for your degree of fitness. Uh, and uh, the other point would be to make sure if you've had um, uh, a, a – make sure that you have a uh, evaluation by my, your primary care physician. Make sure that you've got good cardiac health, that there aren't any – you know, issues that would require special attention, like a diabetic patient or mm-hmm. you know, a patient with kidney issues or you know, musculoskeletal issues. Um, and on that matter, make sure you're stretching too. Good stretching before you do your exercise, really, really key. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those would be some of the things that I would look at and uh, be aware of insects and ticks. And then most of all, just uh, make sure that you're, Taking these things in consideration, and then make sure you have fun. Yes. Uh, that, that's that's key too. That's good for your mental health. Yes, absolutely. Well, this has been very very informational. Thank you so much. If anyone would like to get a hold of you or find out more information, how can they do that? Uh, you know, I would have them contact MonarchHealthCare.com. Uh, that's uh, uh, the group that I'm with. It's a multi-specialty group in Orange County, and we and other physicians in Monarch would be very pleased to help anybody that uh, would like our services. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy your summer. Well, thank you, Laferne, and thanks for letting me have a chance to give some thoughts, and hopefully that's been helpful for your listeners. Yes, I'm sure it has. Thank you so much. Dr. David Fusby, internal medicine physician in Laguna Hills for Monarch Healthcare. Thanks again. Well, you're very welcome, Laferne, and have a wonderful fourth. I will. I'm Laferne Cusack. This is ESPN LA 710. ESPN LA 710. Remember the signs of heat exhaustion. Some symptoms can include fatigue, nausea, headache, excessive thirst, muscle aches, cramps, weakness, confusion, or anxiety, dizziness, fainting, and agitation. Now, causes of heat exhaustion include exposure to high temperatures, particularly when combined with high humidity and strenuous physical activity. Without prompt treatment, heat exhaustion can lead to heat stroke, a life-threatening condition. Fortunately, heat exhaustion is preventable. So remember, don't wait until you feel thirsty to drink. 
get your sunblock out and your clothes to cover up your skin and have a safe and fun summer. I'm Lafern Cusack. This is ESPN LA 710. ESPN LA 710.